Perched atop our nation's capital in Washington, D.C., is a 20-foot statue known as the Freedom Lady. This statue was sculpted in Rome and imported to America. But during its delivery, the ship encountered a bitter storm, howling winds, huge waves. In fact, the seas were so severe that the captain feared that the boat might capsize. And so he ordered the cargo thrown overboard. But when the crew went to toss aside the freedom lady, the skipper stopped them. He shouted over the noise of the storm, No, never! We'll flounder before we throw freedom away. And this is Paul's message in Galatians chapter 5. Never throw away your freedom. And yet many Christians do. Legalism is the storm that rocks our boat, our boat of faith. Legalism is the mentality that it's up to me to either obtain or maintain a right standing with God by what I do. I try to prove that I'm deserving of God's blessing by my performance. At times, the rules I try to keep are God's. At other times, they're mine, or maybe they come from the church. But the idea is the same. Our work proves our worthiness. Well, the gospel of grace teaches us just the opposite. There's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. On our own, the most obedient among us are still unworthy. Thus, God extends His grace. On the cross, Jesus did what we could never have accomplished. He did what we could never do. All that needed to be done for us to receive God's favor was accomplished on the cross of Christ. Our job now is to humble ourselves and put our faith in God's grace. But sometimes the storm blows and we get bullied by this mentality of legalism. Maybe through a friend or maybe some hard-nosed preacher or even our own guilty conscience will tell us that we need to be doing this. We need to be doing that. And we can start to doubt the sufficiency of Christ. We add a few good works just to be on the safe side. We try to add to our spiritual resume. But trying to be on the safe side will put you on the wrong side. This is what we learned tonight. When we lean toward legalism, we diminish the cross of Christ and we drift away from God's grace. In essence, we throw away our freedom. Well, Paul warns the Galatians. Chapter 5 begins. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Understand, Jesus has set us free from performance-based religion. He's taken us off the treadmill of working and striving, but never measuring up. Today we live by faith. You remember in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, Peter told the church not to expect the Gentile believers to conform to the Jewish law. He said to them in verse 10, Why do you test God? By putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Notice Peter refers to the demands of the law as a yoke. A harness that will choke off the joy of Jesus in the life of the Spirit. And any time Christians stop depending on the work of Jesus and begin to trust in their own good deeds, they refasten that yoke choke. They choke away their freedom. 
This is what the Judaizers were doing to the Galatians. Rather than teaching them to live by grace through faith, they were putting the believers there back on the treadmill. They expected them to live up to all kinds of pet standards and and various rules. Their own lethal concoction of self-righteousness. Here was the problem. Here is the problem. You see, the legalist, he appears so disciplined, so pious, so sincere. And a new believer gets intimidated. They think, who am I to buck such a spiritual person if they say I should? Apparently, I should. Some religious folks like to throw their weight around. By enforcing their rules, they can control other people. Or they can make themselves look good in comparison. Or they can climb some pecking order in their mind. And you see the new believer get sucked in by this. Because of their ignorance, or maybe their fear, or their uncertainty, they become saddled with unnecessary baggage. A person who Jesus died to set free ends up living under, as Paul says, a yoke of bondage. Hey, this is why freedom is always unfinished business. You know, that's not only true politically, that's true spiritually. There's always somebody out there that's going to try to rob you of your liberty. Paul tells the new believers in Galatia, Stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. He's saying a yoke is no joke. I mean, there will always be people out there trying to refit a new harness around your neck. This is why Paul is so adamant. Stand up, resist, stay free. He tells the Galatians in verse 2, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Now, one of the legalistic stipulations being enforced on the Galatians was Jewish circumcision. This was an Old Testament badge worn by God's people Israel. The Judaizers were insisting that Christians in Galatia also wear this same badge. And you see, this is typical of legalism. Every form of legalism has its set of badges. Faith is hidden under the lapel, under the badge. Faith is unseen. Faith is in the heart. But you see, religion loves to assign external badges, badges you can see. There are churches today that emphasize ceremony and ritual for the same reasons. Righteousness is equated with outward observance, church membership, or baptism, or daily devotions, or homeschooling your kids, or speaking in tongues, or giving an offering, or keeping a holy day, or whatever the this and that happens to be. Certainly, these activities all have a place. But if they're made mandatory to pleasing God, you insult God's grace and you diminish the work of Jesus. Faith in Jesus makes you as right with God as you can get. If you're trusting in Jesus, you can't get any more righteous. In Christ, there's no such thing as second class. Now, as I said earlier, to doubt the sufficiency of God's grace and to lean in the direction of legalism... Just to be on the safe side (laughs) puts you on the wrong side. And that's what was happening to the Galatians over this matter of circumcision. Paul tells them that if they make a religious ritual a requirement to be right with God, they forfeit 
the merits of Christ. This is serious. Note how Paul puts it. Christ will profit you nothing. If you yield to circumcision, Christ will profit you nothing. This is a big deal. Faith in Christ is an all or nothing proposition. We need to know that. Add anything to your faith in Jesus. Oh, I'll just rack up a few good works and rely on a couple of traditions just in case. If you doubt Christ's sufficiency, you forego the saving merits of Jesus. His benefits no longer accrue to you. Verse 3 tells us, And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Since nobody's perfect, the legalist picks and chooses which rules and rituals he wants to obey. But that's not how it works, Paul says. Paul says to live by the law, you're covered by it all. God's law isn't some spiritual smorgasbord. You don't walk down the line and pick and choose. Hey, read the law that God gave to Moses. Do you kindle a fire on the Sabbath day? Do you flip on a light? Do you turn your stove on on Saturdays? If you do, you've blown it. Have you kept a kosher diet? You remember biting into that ham and cheese sandwich, you little lawbreaker, you? You see, if you keep, try to keep part of the law, you're under all of the law. Verse 4 is the strongest warning yet. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Wow. It's one or the other. You can't trust in the work of Christ and in your own works at the same time. Either you're living under law or you're living under grace. He says, for we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. We're right with God by faith, which then poses the question. If you stop having faith, then how can you continue to be right with God? This seems to be the concern in Galatia. They had begun in the faith of God, but now they were, they were drawing back. Paul uses stern words here for the person who abandons his faith, who stops trusting in Christ and begins relying on their own compliance and their own obedience he says they become estranged from Christ. He says they've fallen from grace. As we read in verse 2, Christ profits him nothing. It's hard to say that such a person retains their salvation. Now here's my take on once saved, always saved. I don't receive salvation because of anything I do or don't do. So, I can't lose my salvation by anything I do or don't do. It's not as if there are certain sins that are salvation snuffers. Commit them and you're no longer saved. That's not how it works. No, we obtain and maintain a right standing with God by faith. And yet, evidently, faith is not a once and for all status. You see, faith is not a sign on the bottom line type of proposition. Faith is a living thing. It's more like a plant. Think of it that way. If you want a plant to live, you water it and you feed it and you weed it when necessary. But if you ignore that plant, what's going to happen to it? It's going to shrivel up and die. And so it is with faith. We have to continue in our faith. We have to keep our faith alive. We can draw back and stop having faith. Colossians 1 verse 23 states this clearly. 
There Paul writes, You, he has reconciled, if indeed you continue in your faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. You see, you have to continue in faith. Now here's a personal testimony. I grew up in a Baptist church, and man, there was a time when I held tenaciously to once saved, always saved. I assumed that once I committed my life to Jesus, man, that was it, regardless of any future decisions I made. That just sounds so good to me. Even after I started reading and studying the Bible, I wanted to hold on to that doctrine. That sounds good. In fact, I'd still believe it now if I could, but I can't. And you know why? It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not. That's not what's taught in the New Testament. From beginning to end, the Bible is clear that to be saved, we need to continue in our faith. Verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. In Christ, deeds and religious badges don't matter. You see, God always looks below the badge. He looks into the heart. He always looks below the external to the internal. What makes you right with God is not whether you tithe or don't, or whether you attend church or stay home, or whether you read your Bible or the newspaper. These acts may help you demonstrate your love for God, but they don't determine His love for you. God accepts you and He blesses you, not because of your feats, but because of your faith. Now, a lot of pastors are afraid to preach this. They're afraid to preach grace, for if they do, they'll give up their leverage. I mean, if the church members discover that the reason God blesses their lives is because of what Christ has done for them, not what they do, what motivation will they have to serve and work and obey and teach Sunday school and come to the church work day? How will we ever get anybody to the church work day if they really believe they can stay home and God will still bless them? And yet pastors who fear the grace of God don't understand its power. For when you teach a person that God blesses them regardless, it frees them up to serve the Lord, not because they have to now, but because they want to. And you end up with everybody out on the church work day. Paul tells us how this operates in verse 6. Faith works through love. The more you realize God loves you, the more you trust Him. And the more you trust Him, the more God does to demonstrate His love. You see, the law drives a wedge between us and God. But grace melts us and molds us and fills us from the inside out. In verse 7, Paul asks the Galatians, he says, You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? I mean, one of these legalists sold them a toxic potion of faith plus works. This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. This undermining of God's grace that was going on in Galatia was never taught by Christ, nor was it ever preached by Paul. He warns them, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You see, legalism is like yeast. It corrupts by puffing up. Legalism plays on our pride. It's the show me religion. Oh, look at what I'm doing for God. Look at how good I am. 
And that kind of attitude can pollute an entire church. It turns a good church into a bunch of hypocrites. Verse 10. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. The message Paul preached was the work of Christ, the cross. And this was what offended the Jews. The cross implied that man can never be good enough for God. You see, the idea of God's grace assaults man's pride. Paul wasn't the target of Jewish persecution because of his preaching of Old Testament legalism. Oh no, Paul taught God's grace. And that's why they tried to silence him. Now keep in mind, the flashpoint for these Judaizers was circumcision. This was the rule on which they insisted. And this is why Paul hits hard in verse 12. In fact, he takes off the gloves, so to speak. Notice, he says, I could wish that those who troubled you would even cut themselves off. You know what he's saying? Paul is so opposed to this performance-based religion, he wishes that those who were insisting on circumcision just go all out, man. I mean, if clipping off the foreskin is what truly pleases God, then why not go to the extreme and just emasculate yourself? Here's how Peterson paraphrases verse 12. He says, why don't these agitators, obsessive as they are about circumcision, go all the way and castrate themselves? Paul gets pretty tough here, doesn't he? Verse 13, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, for over four chapters, Paul has stressed the importance of liberty. But Paul realizes that he can be misunderstood. You know, misunderstandings happen. If you're married, you know that. Recently, I ran across uh, some headlines that, that basically ran the same risk. Here, here are some headlines that have been misunderstood. Police begin campaign to run down jaywalkers. That can be misunderstood. Iraqi head seeks arms. It's a good feeling when your wife still laughs at your jokes. Astronaut takes blame for gas in spacecraft. Here's one. Local high school dropouts cut in half. And how about this one? Man minus ear waves hearing. Of course he does. I'm sure that the editor of these comments wished that he had been more careful to avoid the misunderstanding. Well, Paul wants to be careful to prevent a misunderstanding. Just because we're free from living under the law doesn't mean we have liberty to sin. Yes, rules no longer govern our behavior. But that doesn't mean that our behavior doesn't matter. Law is out. Love is in. We've swapped rules for a relationship. You see, pleasing God is still the goal. But the method now has changed. The law worked from the outside in. You conform to the law. But grace puts us in touch with God and transforms us from the inside out. Paul encourages us. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, 
but through love serve one another. You see, God wants us controlled not by law or by lust, but by love. You know, people gravitate toward the extreme. It's either legalism on the one hand or it's license on the other. But grace produces love. The love of Christ is what produces gratitude in our hearts. Grace isn't an excuse to sin. It's a reason not to sin. We're so in love with Jesus. We're so grateful to Him for what He's done. We don't want to do anything that would displease Him. Verse 14, For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Here it is. Drum roll, please. One word sums up the whole Old Testament. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the whole intent of the law was to love. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. You know, one of the most famous bites of all time occurred in the heavyweight title fight between Evander Holyfield and Mike Tyson. The two boxers were all tied up when Tyson leaned in and he took a bite out of Holyfield's ear. The boxing world was appalled by such a barbaric, classless tactic. And yet I wonder how many Christians have taken a bite out of another brother or sister. We're certainly not free to snip at each other with gossip. To take bites out of each other's reputation. Believers in Jesus need to walk in love. Verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit. Here's how you walk in love. You walk in the Spirit. And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now the lust of the flesh is a biblical name for selfish desires. And how do you overcome a lifestyle of selfish gratification? Some say the answer is willpower. More willpower, man. Or the power of positive thinking. Some say self-discipline or the 12 steps or months of psychological therapy. But the answer is much simpler. Paul tells us, walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. When you get caught up and wrapped up and overwhelmed in the influence and love of the Holy Spirit, you don't have time to concern yourself with the lust of the flesh. You become too busy loving God and loving others than to worry about yourself. He says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. You see, Paul pinpoints two approaches to life. Either you see yourself in Christ or you see yourself apart from Christ. Either your world revolves around Jesus or it revolves around yourself. Either you're relishing the grace of God or you're relying on your own grit. Either you're into Jesus or you're into yourself. It's one or the other. Paul says get caught up in Jesus. Walk in the influence of the Holy Spirit and you'll lose interest in fleshly desires. He tells us in verse 18, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The influence of the Holy Spirit accomplishes what the law could never do. It teaches us how to love. It puts love in our hearts. In fact, these two approaches to life produce predictable paths. Paul lists the works of the flesh alongside the fruit of the Spirit. The flesh, that is, 
me apart from Christ, it works. When I'm walking in the flesh, it's all up to me. But the Spirit inside me does God's work in my life. And the result is fruit. You see, the flesh is self-centered. The fruit is Spirit-inspired. And you see the difference in the, the attributes they produce. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. And he lists them. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. It's not even an exhaustive list. I got tired reading it. But he says, and the like. That means all the other stuff that's in the same category. It's just a part of the flesh. It's just man's selfish desires, his selfish way of life. Our flesh doesn't have a very impressive resume, does it? I mean, left to ourselves, left on our own, here's what we're capable of. Illicit sex and moral perversion and turmoil and contention and and temper and telling lies and believing lies and intoxication and, and the like. There you are. There you are. You see, God's law was a safeguard. Like a playpen, it kept us toddlers from wandering off into trouble. But without the law, on our own, this is where we would have gone. We would have produced the works of the flesh. And obviously, the works of the flesh can never, through the works of the flesh, you can never work your way to God, Paul tells us. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things, or literally who practice them habitually, will not inherit the kingdom of God. The idea in this verse isn't that a single act of envy or hatred or even sexual sin is going to send a person to hell. Paul is saying, though, that a man who walks habitually in the flesh, it's obvious that he doesn't have a relationship with Jesus and thus he's headed to hell. And he's easy to spot because he's practicing this consistent pattern of evil habits. Which reminds me, this was the problem that the Pope was having with the nuns. Dirty habits. Get it? Dirty habits. But if you walk in the Spirit, the results are also predictable. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. Notice these nine fruits of the Holy Spirit come in three clusters of three each. Cluster number one flows from our relationship with God. Love, joy, and peace. Where does that come from? That comes straight from God. Cluster number two affects our relationships with others. When we walk in the Spirit, we're long-suffering. We can endure other people's idiosyncrasies and hang-ups and problems. Kindness, goodness towards others. It affects our relationships. And cluster number three, the last three traits, involves our relationship with ourselves. Faithfulness and gentleness or moderation and self-control. See, none of these attributes are man-made. They can't be mustered up by the flesh. 
They're the work of God's Spirit. And they can only be produced by God working in our hearts as we trust in His grace. When you try to conjure up your own joy, have you ever tried to do that? Man, I know I'm a Christian. I ought to be joyous today. I need to be joyous. I'm going to be joyous. I'm going to be joyous no matter what. You ever tried to do that? Conjure it up yourself? Have you ever tried to be kind because you know you ought to be kind? Have you ever tried to force yourself to love a guy who's really acting unlovable? That's fake fruit. But if you trust in the Holy Spirit, if you really walk in the Holy Spirit, He'll produce what you lack. He'll manufacture true, genuine, juicy fruit. Real fruit. The Spirit yields unforced love and spontaneous joy and peace in the midst of fear and an enduring patience and genuine kindness and decision-altering self-control. The life of the Holy Spirit is beautiful as you're walking and just trusting and resting in God's grace. Verse 24. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I mean, the most pathetic of fellows is the person who's in Christ, who wants to please God, but he's trying to do it in his own strength. We need to recall that as Christians, we've crucified the flesh. We've committed to stop trusting in our own efforts and live our lives depending upon God's power. Too many believers are Christians, but they live as if they're not. They live as if it's up to them. They live in their own strength. And this is why Paul tells us in verse 25, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. God has made us alive in His Spirit. Now let's lean on Him. Let's trust in Him rather than fall back on our own flesh. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Oh, God expects better out of His kids. Stand fast in the liberty with which Christ has freed us and use that freedom to walk in the Spirit. Chapter 6, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Now the word translated trespass refers to a lapse, a stumble, a slip up. Paul isn't referring here to the false teacher who's deliberately spewing false doctrine and trying to mislead people. He's already told us what to do with that person. Cast him out. You remember? This is the brother, though, who falls victim to some weakness. We're told to restore this person. The word used here and in the other places in the New Testament describe the mending of a fishing net or the setting of a broken bone. Either becomes a tedious task. It involves careful evaluation of the break and then a gentle manipulation to sort of realign the fractured parts. It's, it's, a, it's a delicate job. And this is why this job is not for the novice. Paul is specific here. He says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. The what is to restore. The who is the man who is spiritual. Now the how. You're to do it in a spirit of gentleness. The word gentleness is translated elsewhere, meekness. It means strength under control, firmness, tempered with love. You know, when a kid comes to you with a boo-boo, 
You don't start poking and prodding. You know, they'll pull away. If you want to help them, you've got to be gentle. If you want them to open up, you've got to be tender. And so it is with the saint who's slipped, with a person who's, who's fallen. You don't just barge in with both barrels blazing. It's not a shape up or ship out kind of approach. If that's your approach, you're going to run him off before you can bandage his wound and give him time to heal. You've got to be firm, but you've also got to be loving. And the best way to strike the balance is to take heed to what comes next. He says, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Be humble or you'll stumble. If not for the grace of God, it would be the same mess for you. You'd be in the same boat. Never underestimate your ability to blow it. <laughs> legalism, legalism creates a self-righteous, judgmental church. But where grace is embraced, folks will roll up their shirt sleeves and they'll reach out to those who have slipped and stumbled. Paul continues in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens... And so fulfill the law of Christ. In the process of restoring a fallen brother, you'll discover that there were stresses and pressures that led him into his sin. That means that once he's been restored, your job isn't over. You need to help him cope with the factors that led to his fall. There's an Indian word for friend, which means one who carries my sorrows on his back. And this is what Jesus did for us. And you are never more like Jesus than when you do the same for a friend. I've heard it put, friendship multiplies our joys and divides our grief. When we get up under someone else's load and help to lighten it in some way, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. He says, for if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. What did the mama well say to the baby well? Son, it's only when you're spouting that you get harpooned. It's true. Don't get haughty. Don't start spouting. Don't think yourself more highly than you ought to, than you are. At times you'll be carrying someone else's load, but there'll be other times when someone will be help, helping to carry your load. Trust me. If you've been a Christian for more than a few years, you've spent little times on both ends of the load, haven't you? The church is like a blood bank. Sometimes you go to give blood, but sometimes you go because you need a transfusion. Verse 4, but let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. Now at first that sounds like a contradiction. What am I supposed to do? Bear one another's burdens or bear my own load? And the answer is a resounding both. We are responsible for each other. But my responsibility for you never supersedes your responsibility for yourself. Verse 5 balances out verse 2. For each one shall bear his own load. There's an old AA saying, if I am not the problem, there can be no solution. I like that. See, I can't blame my dilemma on anyone other than myself. I should never say, well, 
If you had been there to help me bear my burden, I wouldn't have succumbed to the pressure. You can't say that. Your burden is still your burden, and you're responsible for your burden. In fact, God promises in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 not to give us more than we can handle. You could have handled it if you'd trusted in the Lord, if you'd been walking in the Spirit. We're all responsible to bear His own load. We need to keep the two in balance. Yes, we're to bear one another's burden, but we're also to bear our own load. Now the topic shifts to spiritual investments. And one of the best investments you can make is in a good teacher. Paul tells us in verse 6, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. And I say amen to that. Realize Christianity was the first religion whose teachers relied on the voluntary contributions of the people they taught. This was new to Christianity. Judaism taxed the people to pay for the priests. Roman religions exacted fees and dues. Understand, a tithe is not a tax. Rather than an invoice, it's an investment. Give from a grateful heart. Bless the teacher in proportion to how he blesses you. I got a a little uh, card in the mail just uh, this past week from a brother in the church just encouraging me as to how much my ministry had blessed he and his family. Don't underestimate the importance of that. I'll go a long way. I'll probably go the next month on that one card. Pastors need that encouragement. Reminds me of the pastor who told his congregation that he had a $100 sermon that would take 10 minutes to preach. But he also had a $60 sermon that would take 30 minutes to preach. And he even had a $10 sermon, but that would take him an hour to preach. Well, after they took the offering that morning, he decided which sermon to preach. That was a shrewd pastor. (laughs) You didn't get that joke. That's okay. Verse 7. Paul continues his thoughts on spiritual investments. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Here's a natural law that also applies to the spiritual realm. Sow corn and you'll end up up to your ears in corn, won't you? A farmer understands the principle of sowing and reaping. You never sow corn and expect soybeans. You reap what you sow. And the same is true spiritually. He says, for he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Sow to the flesh. Entertain thoughts that oppose God. Preoccupy your mind with ideas that ignore God. And one day you'll end up living without God. Here's the rule of thumb. Garbage in, garbage out. Fill your head with impure images and filthy talk and your life will gravitate downward. You'll wake up one day in bondage to what you thought was just fun and games. Notice what Paul says. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. you got to know, this is a law. This is a law of nature. This is a divine principle. It's like the law of gravity. You can doubt gravity. You can deny gravity. You can defy. Try to defy gravity. You can jump off the bridge and shout all the way down that you don't believe in gravity. In fact, 
halfway down, about 10 feet from the pavement, you can shout, nothing's happened to me yet. Then splat. God is not mocked. This law of sowing and reaping, it applies to each one of us. I heard of the guy who sowed his wild oats on Monday through Saturday and then he went to church on Sunday and prayed for a crop failure. Trust me, that doesn't work. This is a law. You reap what you sow. When you choose a music download or when you watch a movie or when you browse a website, this is the principle you need to remember. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. And understand what's so deceptive. Really, the only thing deceptive about this principle, about this law of sowing and reaping, is that you don't always reap in the same season that you sow. That's what can be deceptive. I mean, if the harvest came the day after you planted and farmed and watered, if the harvest came immediately, it would be fun. It would be easy. And the same is true spiritually. Seldom do we reap in the same season that we sow. I mean, think about it. Adultery is fun for a while. But when infidelity blossoms, when you're found out, there's hell to pay. On the other hand, studying your Bible, learning to pray, this can be hard work at first. Like planting seed on a hot day. But when you bring in the riches of the harvest, you realize that it was all worth it. It was worth the discipline. It was worth laying aside some things in order to focus on God. If you want to grow a strong faith, sow good seed. I mean, log on to good Bible teaching and Christian music and take walks with God and think God's thoughts. The more you sow to the Spirit, the more you'll reap of the Spirit. This is why Paul says in verse 9, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Our biggest obstacles are weariness and discouragement. We get tired and we lose heart. This is why we need endurance. We need to press on. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. You take care of your family before you feed strangers, and the same should be the case in the body of Christ. Well, Paul starts wrapping up his letter to the Galatians in chapter 6, verse 11. See with what large letters... I have written to you with my own hand. Now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, we learn that Paul usually dictated his letters through a stenographer. He would then sign them at the end with his own signature to assure their authenticity. But the Galatians was an exception. Paul was so passionate about this letter and its subject, God's grace, he cared so much for its readers, the Galatians, that apparently he wrote this letter to the Galatians with his own hand. Paul penned Galatians himself. Some people assume that Paul wrote in large letters because he was having the eye problem that we talked about last week. His thorn in the flesh had reoccurred. It also could have been an attempt to make sure that the Galatians read every word. He wanted them to digest this letter. You remember at the bottom of the Declaration of Independence, you find the words John Hancock, but in abnormally large letters. The story goes that Hancock used the large script to make sure that King George saw his name. This might have been Paul's motive. He wanted to make sure that the Galatians read every word. 
he concludes, As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. I mean, the false teachers in Galatia, they insisted that the Gentiles be circumcised. To stand up for grace and faith in Christ would have been costly to them. They would have been persecuted if they had preached that message. And they were looking for the easy way out. He says, for not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Paul's saying these false teachers are just hypocrites, man. I mean, there are areas of the law that they ignore themselves, and yet they browbeat you into circumcision. Have nothing of it. I mean, the Galatians were nothing but notches on the belts of these false teachers. Don't let them manipulate you in such a way. Stand up for grace. Verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Jews were embarrassed by the cross, but to Paul, it was the only, it was his only source of pride. It was the only badge he wore on his chest. The only thing he bragged about was the cross. Paul accomplished more for the cause of Christ than any Christian who has ever lived. And yet look at his resume and you find nothing in which he chose to boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. Apparently, all his deeds were nothing to brag about in comparison to the work of Jesus on the cross. You know, a life of sacrifice and service is the least that we can give. For Paul to brag about his accomplishments would have been like drinking an expensive wine and then talking about the bottle. How foolish would that be? Don't brag about the vessel. Brag about what's inside. The cross changed Paul's life. He says of the cross, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, before Paul saw the cross, this world's power and wealth and religion had a hold on Paul. But at the cross of Christ, the world system was exposed for the evil it is. All the world joined together to put to death an innocent man. Religion and power and wealth all came together. To crucify Jesus for no other reason than their own jealousies and fear. After seeing what the world did to Jesus, Paul would never again be enchanted by this world and its charms. Never again. He was crucified to the world. And the world was crucified to him. Paul died to whatever hold it had on him. Paul no longer sensed any obligation to this world and to the, to the pleasures or the draw or the charm of this world. Author Neil Strait makes a penetrating observation. He says, Christ on our cross is the way Calvary really reads. He died for us in our place. We then are debtors. Strange that so often we act like we owe nothing. Why is it when the world knocks on your heart's door, why is it you react as if you owe it a hearing? Why why are you tempted to tune in? We need to renounce this world and any hold it might have on our lives. Look at what this world did to Jesus. We need to be crucified to this world and this world crucified to us. We have a debt for sure, but it's not to this world. Our obligation is to the Savior hanging on the cross. Verse 15, 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Again, it's not what you can do or what you don't do that matters to God. It's what Jesus has done for us. We are a new creation in Christ. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Remember the false teachers, the Judaizers, they had not only questioned the legitimacy of Paul's message, they also were questioning the sincerity of his ministry. And so how does Paul answer their their doubts about him? Well, finally, he takes off his shirt. He, He just takes off his shirt. And he reveals the crisscross scars on his stomach and on his back. Pop marks worse than what you'd find on any old country road. Most of his scars were the result of his stoning in Lystra. Lystra was Galatia. That was the Galatians. Paul remembers, he shows them his scars. You doubt my ministry? You doubt my sincerity? Hey, I I mean what I say. I've got the scars to prove it. His scars were the proof of his suffering that he endured to bring the gospel to the Galatians. His scars testified of his sincerity. Reminds me of a missionary to Burma, Adoniram Judson. For seven years, Judson was in prison and he was kept in leg irons and handcuffs for preaching the gospel. His wrists and his ankles bore severe scars. Upon his release, Judson asked the king of Burma if he would be granted permission to preach Jesus. To the Burmese, the king responded, My people are not fools enough to listen to anything a missionary might say, but I fear they might be impressed by your scars and turn to your religion. Paul also spoke volumes by his scars. Paul ends his gospel of grace. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let me close with a quote that I think sums up Galatians. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. We are saved and we stand and we live and we grow all through faith in God's amazing grace. And there's... Paul's letter to the Galatians. Next week, you should read Ephesians.